Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this first week of Easter, this first Sunday of Easter, is Daniel seven thirteen through 28 which, like last week, in addition to being alluded to within last week's and this week's passage in regard to the Son of Man, also helps highlight what victory is accomplished by Jesus as the Son of Man. It is important for us to note that the idea of service in 714 is often connected with worship within the rest of the times it's used in the Aramaic portions of Scripture. And that indeed is how it seems to be used in verse 27, where it is reference to this most high. And so this son of man is not just a reference to a, a, a way of referring to the people of God, but has to be a way of referring to someone under whom the people reign. Someone like Jesus, the Messiah. The scripture reads, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts which are four are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, He shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into the hand, until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. A 
good morning again. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be starting in Matthew 8, 23 today. We have come to this part of the Gospel of Matthew in our series going through. And it's a second group of three miracle accounts. The first group was two weeks ago. Matthew kind of interrupts that display of, the, of Jesus' authority to explain the call of discipleship, how there is a lot of sacrifice involved to come to the one who bore our sins, the one who in his writing will bear their sins, but now we look back on having already born. And so we, we know what these miracles mean, what they indicate, It was told to us in the last passage that the people who are in this, the people living at that time that are in our narrative, they don't necessarily know it. They didn't get the same description of verses 16 to 17. But after this triad, after this passage, they ought to know what the miracles mean. Because Matthew is demonstrating again through the narrative, what he's already just told us. That these miracles are a foretaste of the future and built on the reality of the cross. And it begins like this. Matthew 8, 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Father, I pray that you would help us as we think through all of this passage today. Guide what we think. Guide what we say. Allow us to be able to come to worship you and your Son, understanding the authority that he has that is your authority. Allow us to respond appropriately in worship, in fear, and in love, in appreciation. Pray that it wouldn't just be something that we think about for the next time of this sermon, but that we would continue to think it out through the rest of our lives. To be reminded every day to worship you because of your authority, because of your person, and your actions. And I thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been to a presentation, perhaps a presentation with music, perhaps a presentation with magic, perhaps a presentation of a particular athlete? where the whole point seems to be saying, I'm going to continually one-up myself. So that each time he starts talking about what he's going to do next, you sit back and say, no, no, there's no way he could possibly do that. The finger work is too much for for that. There's just not a way that the physical body can do such a thing. And yet, time and again, he continues to meet what he says he's going to and come to that expectation. That seems to be the way in which this passage comes. We're looking at Jesus as he's going with his disciples, 
going, in fact, to rest, and there are conflicts. Well, certainly, he couldn't do that. No man can do that. Well, let's just look at what happens. The three scenes starts with scene one, showing Jesus' authority over the chaotic creation, over the waters and the storm. This is 8.23 through 8.27, and Matthew begins it as what we've already read. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. The boat was prepared in verse 18, which we can be reminded of, said this, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And now he's entered into that boat that's made ready for him, and he's going. But on his way to the other side, there's a bit of a danger. Behold, a great tempest a great earthquake, a great storm comes upon it such that the waters are covering the boat. So much unrest, so much chaos surrounding this trip to the other side. And yet with the waters threatening this chaos and threatening danger to the ship, Jesus is peacefully asleep. And being asleep in the midst of a storm doesn't necessarily mean that you're wise or trusting. We are about to turn to the book of Jonah in a few minutes. And in there, it's not anything about him being wise or trusting, but naive. But as we look at it in this instance, and we look at how this continues to be brought out, the sleep of Jesus does seem to be a sleep of trust. A sleep where he knows, regardless of how chaotic the waters are, his hour has not yet come, so he can trust God to provide for his own safety. That's hinted at in verse 26, when he calls the disciples and says, O ye of little faith, a word, an expression that's only used five times in the New Testament, always with a similar reflection of Matthew 6.30 where it is introduced for the first time, commenting on people's lack of trust in the Father's provision. But it's also seen in the contrast that is made between Jesus and the experienced shipman disciples, at least four fishermen among them, who in verse 25 are panicked. There we read, and his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. The disciples are at their wit's end. They're in the boat. They're trying to resolve against all the chaotic waters that are surrounding them. And these four experienced fishermen with perhaps other disciples also present 
wake up and carpenter. Someone with little experience in boats or with shipmastering may offer and come and wake him up for help. Crying in desperation, save us, we perish. And it is similar to how Jonah is awoken in Jonah chapter 1. For remember from Jonah 1, Jonah is sent to Nineveh and he disobeys. He goes exactly the opposite direction. His lack of kindness, his prejudice, means that he doesn't want to send the good news to Nineveh. So he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord, with his power over all creation, sends a storm after him, appoints the storm to come up to him and then be there to confront him to both discipline him and bring him to Nineveh. And that storm is then described in verses 4 through 6 of Jonah chapter 1. Then the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. We can see some similarities already starting to form. There's a great wind, a mighty tempest, just as there is a great storm. There's experienced shipmen trying everything they can and then finally coming to awake a sleeping prophet. But there's a difference. Jonah's wrong to be sleeping. And when they wake him, they don't ask him to save them. They ask him to pray to God, that God would save them. There's a recognition by these shipmen that no mere man can do anything to resolve the chaos of the waters around them. They need God. And they're not entirely certain at this point which God is the true God. So they want everyone praying to their gods. And so Jonah does. God does end up calming that storm. But the things are different in Matthew. One commentator explains it quite well this way. The reader might recall Jonah, who also had to be awakened in the storm, to pray for God's help for the boat and its crew. But unlike Jonah, Jesus will prove to be in charge of the situation by his own authority rather than by praying for God's help. As we shall read in 1241, something greater than Jonah is here. And so in Matthew 8, 26, we see that. They call upon him to save them, 
and verse 26, and he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Conflict was set up between the chaos of the waters and the God of all creation, between Jesus here. The disciples are at their wit's end, but Jesus is so much in control of the situation that he can rebuke the disciples first before dealing with the chaos. Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And in these waters, he simply rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea. He confronts them, and the great tempest of verse 24 becomes a great calm in verse 26. He has the authority to know and to respond. Then the people respond in verse 27. But the men marveled saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're amazed. The man here can command the winds and the seas, and they obey him. That is an authority they don't quite know what to do with. And so they question, who is he? What type of person is this? And of course, we as the reader know. This is the long-expected prophet. This is the long-expected king. This is God the Son in human flesh to save his people. They do not quite know that yet. But at the same time, we the readers are not the only ones who recognize this reality of his identity. Because the second scene shows that there are others who know that reality to come. As verses 28 through 34 show Jesus' authority over demons. Verse 28. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, There met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. So here we have a conflict beginning to bud. No longer just thinking about chaotic waters or chaotic forces, but chaotic persons, unclean spirits. Go into the country of the Gergesenes or the Gadarenes, don't really know exactly what's going on here, but it is likely that they are in Gentile territory. He came to this side to rest. There's no rest as long as the forces of evil are opposing him. And here are the two, possessed with devils, under the influence of these demonic spirits. Not only so, But these are fiercely violent spirits. They come from the tombs and the bones, the only company they can have. Because everyone else is too afraid to come that way. 
And that, then, is the way that Jesus has come. Everyone else avoids the path. Jesus comes into the path. Will he be able to do what no man has been able to do and walk through? But it is interesting. With even that one small verse of buildup, the actual confrontation is a bit underwhelming. Because it finishes before it even starts. Because in verses 29 to 31, the demons beg. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. This certainly doesn't seem like the response of demonized men who are so fiercely violent that no one would pass that way. It is the response of two demonized men in that way. But despite how fiercely violent these demons are, Jesus' mere presence is enough to make them shake in their boots. To be so afraid that they come begging him for a little bit of mercy, not mercy so that they don't receive judgment of being cast out, but mercy in how they are cast out. You start in verse 29 by asking Jesus, why are you here? What have we to do with you? And then they say, Thou Son of God. They further explain what that means when they ask again, Are you come here to torment us before the time? They know Jesus is the Son of God who will judge them, who will torment them, and they know there is no hope for them to get out of that torment. They certainly don't want it to come quicker than it's supposed to. The 11th century theologian Theophilact correctly states, While the men in the boat are doubting what manner of man this is, that even the wind and the sea obey him, the demons come out and tell them. The begging of the demons is interrupted in some ways by verse 30, giving us the background information that there are pigs in the area. There's a herd of many swine. They're feeding. Which then becomes the basis for another begging of the devils. If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. They don't ask that they not be cast out. They seem to know better than to expect that. But they instead beg that when they are cast out, they are cast into the pigs. That there is mercy in the incoming judgment. 
it's possible that they want to go into these pigs because they want an occasion to turn the city against Jesus. It's possible that as Matthew 12, 43 to 45 teaches, there is a desire for demons to have hosts. And so they want to have a suitable host. Regardless, they do ask to go into the swine, needing Jesus' permission even for such a thing as that. And he grants it. Verse 32, And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. It seems pretty clear the violence of verse 28 wasn't overstated, but that it really was subdued by Jesus' mere presence. Because when these demons come into the pigs, it's so violent of them rushing down into the sea, drowning in the waters. And the demons once again being hostless. If the calming of the sea hints at divinity, this whole narrative so far whispers it. The demons seem to be correct in calling him the Son of God. But the response isn't as we'd want. Verses 33 to 34 tell us how the town responds. And it's not the amazement of verse 27. It rather seems to be a fear. We read, And they that kept them fled, and went their ways into the city, and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. The herdsmen, those that were keeping and feeding the pigs, see all of this happen, and so they report all of this. And Matthew is keen to say that they report what was befallen to those possessed of the devils. And then the town comes out. They meet Jesus, and they ask him to leave. It is possible that they are just so upset about the economical loss of their pigs. But Matthew seems to direct our attention to the authority over the demons. And it seems that they are afraid of a man with such authority. That instead of it being a good fear that leads to worship, it was a fear that just left to keep that far away from us. We don't want that type of authority here. As we talked about two weeks ago, a little bit on Sunday morning and a lot on Wednesday night, understanding that Jesus has authority means little if you cower away from it. If you don't believe that he is good, if you don't believe that that authority would be used compassionately.
And then we go and continue on in the third scene. Going from these hints of his divinity to whispers of his divinity to outright screams. It's the third in that chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Tells us of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. The setup is drastically different. There's no direct confrontation. And the difference almost seems to point us that this is the most important one of the three. It starts with the claim. Verse 1 And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. He goes back to the other side of the lake that he would have been at at the beginning. He goes to his own city, likely Capernaum, where he seems to have a hub of operation for his Galilean ministry. And we almost seem like we're going backwards. There's not a big confrontation, but rather people coming to be healed. A paralyzed man brought to him Sounds like what we've already read. And then Jesus speaks. And his speaking is not a rise and walk. But upon seeing their faith, his response is, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Uh, it's hard to know what the paralyzed man is thinking here. He might not quite understand, or he might be thinking, that's exactly what I came for. While working at the Cedarville Grounds crew, someone came to me saying, hey, I read this passage today, and I have a question, like, does he want his sins to be forgiven? Is that the whole reason that they came? course we don't know that is possible Matthew's point is that we need to know that sin is the bigger problem and that Jesus has the authority to deal with it but the claim the claim is audacious the claim is bold the claim is the biggest claim that Jesus could possibly make thy sins be forgiven thee. Turn back with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. It's his prayer of repentance and confession for what he did with Bathsheba. If we remember that situation, he saw someone that he wanted he brought her to him. He lay with her. And then when she became pregnant, he tried to cover it up by having her husband come back and sleep with her himself. 
And when that didn't work, he had her husband killed. You remember all of those things because we notice how much. The sin doesn't just affect one person. Bathsheba's been sinned against. Uriah's been sinned against. The entirety of the Israelite nation has been sinned against based off of the poor military strategy that led to Uriah's death. And yet in verses 3 and 4, David is right to say, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Despite how many other people were hurt, David's sin was against God and God only. And indeed, all of our sin is against God and God only. So when Matthew 9 comes along, and Jesus claims that his sins are forgiven, he's making a very big claim. Because if, for instance, if Howard steals from Rebecca, then Conrad can't forgive Howard for Rebecca. Rebecca would need to be the one to forgive. If sin is ultimately against God, then unless something else is here, Jesus can't forgive that sin unless Jesus is God, the one being sinned against. And in Matthew 9, 3, the scribes understand that very well. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. This man speaks evil of God and his authority by claiming divine authority for himself, in their view, a mere man. By debasing the authority in this way, he speaks evil of God. And the scribes are right about most things except for the one glaring problem. Jesus is not wrong to claim divine authority because he is himself God. He is God the Son. And this he makes clear in verses 4 through 6. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore, think ye evil in your hearts. For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. They accuse him of speaking evil of God, but then Jesus speaks and says that very thought is itself evil. They are thinking evil in their hearts. And then he asks, which is easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or rise and walk. 
And on one level, we could be a little surprised by this, because certainly it's easier to heal, because that power has been given to man. We don't see it in our day-to-day, but at the time that they are experiencing this, they would have known, like we know, of healings happening by prophets and apostles. So it's certainly easier to heal. But the question he asks is, which is easier to say? And you can say your sins are forgiven all the time. Because there's no clarification, no way of verifying whether it's true or not. But if Jesus goes and says, arise and walk, and the paralyzed man just stays on his bed, unable to walk, that's highly embarrassing. That's shameful. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And that cannot just simply be a reference to a man. This has to go back to Daniel 7.13. Just as last week talked about how the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head, talked about the wonderful glory of the coming of the Son of Man, but used that title to refer to the humility of Jesus in his earthly walk. Not being able to guarantee the luxury of a place to sleep or a secure location. Now, though, it does have more of this idea of glory. It has more of the idea of the judge to come in the last days with the authority to forgive sins. The authority of Emmanuel, God with us, sent to save his people from their sins. But he doesn't finish his sentence with words, but with actions. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk, and go to thy own house. The sign of this, of this miracle, this man coming and then walking, will be a sign, an indicator that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. It almost seems to give us reason to read all of the miracles in Matthew to the same idea. Now, of course, being able to heal in the instance of like Elijah and Elisha doesn't mean having the authority to forgive sins. But if God is blessing someone who made a claim that he can forgive sins with the ability to heal, then God has vindicated that claim. He's shown it to be true. And so we know that he does have the authority to forgive sins. Because verse 7 shows us that the healing happens. And he arose and departed to his own house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. 
The man is healed. He walks and obeys. He goes to his own house. Matthew kind of rushes past that to get to verse 8. The marvels, the multitude saw it. They marveled. Or as other translations say, they feared. And they glorified God. Unlike the fear of the Gergesenes, where it caused them to say, move away from us, their fear is appropriately changed into worship. No, it still might not be a saving faith that we see here. Their response to the authority of Jesus that is fearful and fearsome is to turn it to glorification of God the Father. It's to have that appropriate worship because of it that God had given such authority to men. And so too then should be our response. When we think about this no mere man, this Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who has authority over the winds and the seas, who has authority over demons, and has authority to forgive sins, we ought to be rightly afraid. But we ought not to let that fear keep us away, but to let that fear cause us to approach. Knowing that he has the authority to forgive sins and the desire to forgive sins to all who come. That means we should come. That means if you have not come to him for forgiveness of sins, you should do that today. He has the power. He has the authority. He is willing. Our sins are many. Our sins are our most fundamental problem. We do what is wrong in order we say, what we think, what we do. We deserve punishment. And Jesus bore our sins. He took that upon himself so that he would have the authority to forgive sins. Having borne the punishment, allowing those who come to him in faith to not have to bear it. And for those of us who have done that, who then can watch all of this about the authority that he has shown, knowing that nothing is too much for him, and as it keeps getting harder and harder, he demonstrates his authority even to forgive sins. We should be compelled to draw near to him in gratitude, reverence, awe, and worship, to sing his praises, to pray to him in faith, and to obey him out of love. Because he has the ultimate authority. Because he is God himself. Father, we do thank you for this reminder that Jesus is your son. And he has your authority. And that he can forgive our sins. 
I pray that we would continually to come to him to worship. And that this very moment of thinking about his authority in this way was itself a time of worship. Rejoicing in who he is. Rejoicing in what he has done on our behalf to die. And rejoicing in him as our present Savior. I thank you that I am in him and he in me. And I pray in Jesus' name. Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church, do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>